We are Gold Ivy, a health company dedicated to simplifying health and wellness. Tune in as we search to find the deep, real, and raw truth. We're here to talk big, no room for small talk. It is our mission to inspire, seek growth, simplify the action steps, and build confidence. You decide what works for your daily life and how to transform our lessons into your gold. Are you ready to step into your power? Now is the time. Join us on the fearless pursuit of self-discovery and growth. This is Ivy Unleashed, a Gold Ivy production. Something that has made a world of difference for us and many people we know over this past year has been getting our groceries delivered right to our door. The ability to get local, fresh groceries without us having to step foot into a grocery store has been something we are so grateful for. Convenience, price, and quality are extremely important to us, and that's why we love and support Instacart. Instacart can deliver to your front door in as little as one hour. You can shop multiple stores, see deals in your area to help you save money, and every item is hand-selected by shoppers based on your preferences. To start your 14-day free trial and to get free delivery on your first order over $35, follow the link in the show notes to let Instacart know that we sent you and to help support the show. Instacart, never step foot in a grocery store ever again. We are kicking off February with an episode about love and relationships. We are social creatures that need connection and love. So we brought in the relationship expert and licensed clinical psychologist, Dr. Betsy Chung. If you're looking for ways to cultivate deeper connections with yourself and others, this is the episode for you. Dr. Betsy tied our self-worth and self-esteem to how we interact and attract others. She also touched on ways to tune up our relationships, what a healthy relationship looks like, and how to identify and communicate your needs. So cozy up, grab your boo, and get ready for Dr. Betsy's contagious energy and relationship expertise. And now to this episode of Ivy Unleashed. Welcome back to Ivy Unleashed. This month is a month all about love. And what better way to start off the month than with relationship expert, Dr. Betsy Chung. Thank you, Dr. Betsy, for being here with us. We are so honored and excited to dive into today's topic with you. Thank you so much for having me. I love talking everything relationships. And you know, I'm glad to be contributing to this Valentine's episode for you guys. Yeah, do you like that? Is this the Valentine's episode? (laughs) (laughs) It's the Valentine's month. Yes, yes. yes. Yeah, there you go. (laughs) Yeah, do you like the colors we're wearing today? We're wearing pink and red. Yes. (laughs) I've got my white on too. I normally just wear black, so. (laughs) Yeah. Special for you guys. Yeah. Well, you are a licensed clinical psychologist and relationship expert. That's why you're here and your work is brilliant that we've already seen. So we can't wait to talk to you about everything, but we want to know kind of how you got down this path with relationships. Like what brought you into this field of psychology? You know, I think that this kind of, um, now that I think about it, it started with my parents. Um, my parents, they're just like so in love with each other. Um, I used to think that it was kind of icky growing up. I mean, it's it's not like they were, you know, like super lovey-dovey or anything like that. But 
I remember um, that growing up, I used to kind of observe my parents and they would love to go dancing together. They work together. Everybody would always like friends would come over and they'd be like, your parents are really weird. I was like, why? And they're like, because they actually like each other. Like, <laughs> and, and we would go out to family dinners like every single Sunday. In fact, we still do that. Um, we try our very best to you know still be together. And so my parents are really, really big on family and togetherness. So, you know, I, I never really realized how much I took away from that until actually recently. Um, but the way I even started in, uh, you know, specializing in relationships was years and years ago when I first started my private practice, I was still in the belief that when people cheat, that that's it, you know, the relationship is over. And so I worked with this one couple, well, not the couple, I worked with a client. Um, and I honestly thought that this client was coming to try to, you know, to, to try to work on ending the relationship, um, you know, going through a divorce. But over time, as we worked, you know, it, it was really weird, because at some point, the client was like, yeah, we have such a beautiful relationship right now. And I've never felt like this before with, with my partner. And that was just really, really eye opening for me is I realized that maybe I held on to a lot of, I guess, like limiting beliefs about relationships, I, uh, you know, very like black and white rigid assumptions about what a relationship is supposed to look like. I think the only, the only image that I had was again, my parents. Um, and I assumed that if you're not getting along, then it's probably not a good relationship. And so I think that over time, I started to realize, whoa, like, okay, I successfully helped these clients in their relationships. And then I started to see in other relationships that a lot of the stuff I was always talking about was always relationship related. Even when it was like self-esteem stuff, it was relationship related because we're social animals, you know, so, you, you know, like that's kind of where my fascination and my passion in relationships really came from is from this client, but then also being able to think back and recognize that I generally had a pretty healthy image of what a marriage should look like. Um, I'm really lucky to be able to say that. And, and it's funny because I, I think that that also kind of informs me in terms of what intimacy and, and comfort looks like too. Um, you know, like one of the things, for instance, that my, my mom used to do is my mom used to be like kind of vulgar and she was like, um, she would joke about things that just seemed a little bit inappropriate. And so I remember I would like watch her I was like, gosh, like she's so annoying. But now with my husband, I'm always like, am I annoying you? Am I annoying you? And I actually like to annoy him. And I realized what that's about. It's like, oh, I feel like I get to be myself around him, you know? So all of these things, you know, just really informed my beliefs in terms of like what a healthy relationship looks like, um, what healthy self-esteem should look like, what intimacy should look like. So yeah, that, that's, that's, I guess, my story of, of relationships. Yeah, I love how you talk about your relationship as a child, right? So Andrew and I, we've worked with different therapists and transformational coaches and really worked on our inner child and the relationships that we had growing up and learned how important they are and how much of an impact they have on us now being adults. And your mission statement is, I help you understand your childhood relationships and teach you how to stop them from hurting your adult ones. So for those who may not have been, you know, as lucky or as fortunate to have a healthy relationship with their parents or even just relationships as a young, at a young age, what does that mission mean to you? Can you kind of talk to us about why that is your mission? Yeah. 
you know, to clarify, it doesn't mean that just because I grew up seeing my parents have a generally healthy relationship with each other, that they were perfect parents by any means at all. You know, um, I don't think there's any, there's such thing as a perfect parent. Um, even the most prestigious psychologist that, you know, does attachment work is probably not going to have a perfect experience parenting just because as humans, we are so multifaceted. Um, we go through so much and, you know, people don't really understand emotions and things like that. Um, I think it's, it's more recently that people are really starting to pay more attention to, um, you know, what child rearing is really about, how to talk to children, understanding the experiences of a, ch- of a child. But I think that one, that for me, the reason why I focus so much on childhood is because when we're kids, when we're born into this world, we literally know nothing. You know, we don't have any judgments about anything. We don't have any, any, any idea of who we are, how we relate to the world. And so our relationships with our early caregivers form somewhat of a blueprint for, you know, who we are, how we're supposed to act in the world. Um, how important we are, how we're supposed to treat ourselves. So, you know, as a result of these, I guess, blueprints, what ends up happening is that when nobody else tells us, like, okay, like, this message that you receive might not be totally true. This message that you receive, um, you know, might have been received by you in this way when it actually was meant to be communicated in that way. You know, so we've received like a lot of messages growing up that we don't necessarily know what to do with. And that informs the way that we engage with the world, the way that we view ourselves. So as a result, you know, in adulthood, we're going to continue to engage with people in this exact same way that we were taught how to. Um, we're going to continue to view ourselves in the way that we were taught to view ourselves. And that impacts how we relate to other people. So that's where a lot of the adult struggles come from, is that, you know, it, it, a lot of the ways that we engage in relationships are based on earlier relationships that might not you know, those those kinds of, I guess, methods of engaging might not be applicable to our present relationships anymore. And it might not have been healthy either for us, even when we were children. But, you know, as kids, we kind of figure out certain ways to get our needs met. Um, and those ways that we get our needs met, again, continues on until somebody tells us like, okay, that's not healthy for you. That does get this need met, but it kind of creates this problem. Yeah, so these patterns that we develop, you know, what ends up happening is that these particular ways that we act continue to cause similar problems in our lives. And part of the job of a, of a mental health professional is to be able to recognize these sorts of patterns that keep creating these unhealthy cycles in our lives. So yeah, that that's part of, uh, you know, what I do is I, I sit there and I listen to a client and I listen to words that they say. I listen to, um, you know, certain things that they keep saying, like, oh, yeah, like this person, uh, you know, this, this this person looked at me weird. I was like, hey, you know, I think I, I heard that before, you know, so it seems like maybe that's somewhat of a pattern of yours. I'm wondering where that comes from. So, yeah, like being able to kind of really listen to a client and listen to their patterns, um, you know, then we're able to figure out, okay, does this serve you anymore to continue to look at things this way or to continue to approach things in this way? Yeah. And I was going to ask, how do you know when these patterns aren't serving you if it's all you've known? And so I love how you talked, you just mentioned that that's where a professional comes into play, right? Things aren't working, you're not happy, 
you get that outside perspective. And that's why having a therapist, a coach, someone who an objective perspective is so, so powerful. So before we notice these problems, right, we first have these deep connections with others. And so going back to the beginning, I'd love to hear your perspective on how do we form deep relationships and these deep connections? I I love that question. Um, I think that in relation to some of the things that I was talking about right now with like our childhood, we receive certain messages as children about who we are, how lovable we are. And so, you know, when we continue to believe these messages about ourselves, like it, it informs how we relate to other people. So, you know, I'll give you a quick example. Let's say that as a child, you were crying all the time. Any child cries, right? Let's just say that you have a parent who doesn't like to hear the sound of their child crying. So as a result, what would end up happening is that, you know, this parent is going to treat the child in a way that makes them feel like it's not okay to cry. So if, you know, if mom or dad rejects me when I cry or when mom or dad gets frustrated when I cry, this child is going to feel like, okay, that makes me unlovable. So I'm going to not have these feelings anymore. I'm going to hide these feelings. um, And whenever I'm sad, I'm going to go and either cry in the shower or I'm going to learn how to suppress certain emotions so that I don't feel that way anymore. If we continue to carry this on into our adulthood, what that means is that we're then engaging with other people in a very inauthentic way, meaning that maybe we believe that this very unlovable part of us is going to continue to be unlovable. So when we have feelings in relationships, then we're only showing the parts of ourselves that we believe were lovable, the parts that were not punished by our parents. Um, And then the parts that were punished, we're going to try very, very hard not to show them. What ends up happening over time, though, in a relationship is that we end up continuing to show up very inauthentically. And the problem with being inauthentic in a relationship is that it contributes to loneliness because it feels like nobody knows who I am, right? Like nobody truly, truly knows who I am. And if I were to truly show who I am, then these people are going to reject me. And as humans, again, as social animals, we need to feel a sense of belonging. We need to feel like at least one person in this world truly, truly knows us so that you know, when when things fall apart, that they're going to be there for us and, you know, and that they're not just going to abandon us and, and leave us completely alone. So there's just this, this system, this inside our bodies, our nervous system that is constantly monitoring that for us, um, you know, and, and so, yeah, in terms of, of developing a healthy, intimate relationship, one of the things that we need to learn how to do is we need to learn how to accept ourselves first. We need to learn how to accept ourselves so that we have the courage to be authentic in relationships. And when somebody doesn't accept our authentic version of ourselves, then we understand that it's not our fault, right? So like if I'm a certain way and I enter a new relationship with somebody who can't accept certain parts of me, then naturally maybe that just means that this is not the right relationship for me versus there's something wrong with me and I need to continue to hide that part of me, you know, because over time that does not contribute to, you know, an actually comfortable, peaceful relationship. Yeah. And it makes me think of, you know, when people are searching and searching for a partner, right. And they're, 
thinking about what they want and who they're going to be in this relationship and how they want to get it started and they don't find it or they find relationships that don't really work. It's like the second they let go of that mission to find someone and they find themselves, Mm -hmm. they accept themselves and they're just living their life to make themselves happy and pursue their dreams. And they kind of let go of that pressure of relationship and they care for themselves and they figure out what they want in their life. Then they attract it. And then they're like, the second I stop caring, I found him or her. You know, it's like, Uh that's why, because you're finally accepting yourself and you can be authentic. You can show up as yourself and then you'll be in the environments that that person that might be attracted to that or have similar things in common with you is also there. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I noticed is that the world has learned how to find partners through external sources, right? Like, like, oh, that guy has a perfect body. Oh, that girl is so beautiful. You know, and really what that's all about is as children, when we felt unloved for any reason, when, um, you know, we were not made to feel like, you know, our, our unique selves were lovable, then what ends up happening is that we start looking for external markers on what makes us more lovable. So for instance, like, let's say that I really love, um, throw, throw this out there, let's say that I love to hula hoop. And, you know, my parents never made me feel good about hula hooping. Then maybe what, what I'm going to do is like, okay, then I guess that hula hooping isn't something that makes me lovable or special. And so I might continue to hula hoop but kind of keep it a secret. And then I'm going to try to look externally at other sources for like what might make me more lovable. So for example, if you look at like Instagram models, right? Part of the reason why we're always looking at Instagram models and celebrities is because they, they somehow figured out the formula, right? Like lots of people love them. That's exactly, you know, what I need to be like. And so we start looking external to ourselves in terms of what makes us more lovable versus really being able to kind of tune back into ourselves. All of these messages are actually false, right? Like they're just a little kid's idea of like, okay, like where, where do I find the information on what I need to do in order for somebody to love me? Because they never actually felt like, okay, like me, myself, authentically at my core is, is lovable. Yeah. yeah. For someone listening right now who is like, I got to get to my authentic self. Like, I don't even know where to start. What are some tools that you give your clients to help discover like who, who really am I and, and what makes me me? you know, kind of starting to dive into that work, maybe if they're not ready to work with a therapist yet, are there any tools that you recommend? Our authentic selves is basically based on instinctually who we are. So a lot of times I think that we hold back and we're self-conscious and we're just constantly thinking like, oh, is that okay to say that? Or are people looking at me? And whenever we're starting to focus externally at what's happening in our environment and we're worrying about how we're coming off, we're not allowing ourselves to be authentic. Um, When we have certain wants and we're holding ourselves back or, you know, sometimes it's not even as, as obvious as that. Sometimes we have gotten so used to ignoring our authentic selves that we just assume that we're like, that, that we, we are these 
easygoing people. Now, this is not to say that it's not good to be easygoing. I, I consider myself a pretty easygoing person, but it needs to be truly easygoing. Right? It's not that like I'm just going to go with the flow because that makes things easier. So what that would mean is that like I never have an opinion on where I want to eat. I never have an opinion on the things that I like. I always have to ask somebody else for permission. I always have to check with somebody else first. I go, how do I look? Do you like what I'm wearing? And if nobody says that they like what you're wearing, it's like, okay, let me go change, right? So when we're holding back, when we constantly seek approval or some sort of a nod from our external environment, that's usually a sign that we don't trust ourselves, that, you know, that, that um, we don't trust our own instincts. So I guess a way to practice being more authentic is just to notice those times that you're holding yourself back, right? Like when you want to say something and you're like, oh, should I say that? I would encourage you, why not try it? Just say it and see what happens, right? Like, for instance, I, I know a lot of people that they really, really, they, they have this like silly side. A lot of people say, oh, I have this silly side of me that I really want to come out sometimes. I'm only able to be like that with certain people. That is your inner child trying to, you know, trying to engage with people, trying to, to bring some joy into people's lives. And I would say, just give it a try, you know, just, just say it and see what happens. Um, you know, express a, an opinion. Like if you want to eat something, just just say like, I, I want to go eat this today. You know, just to see how it feels and you're able to then see like, okay, maybe I don't need to constantly monitor myself so much. I don't need to constantly, um, you know, constantly overanalyze everything that's inside of me before I pre- present it out into the world. Yeah, and something earlier you said that was powerful that's, Tying me back to what you just said is like, if you're not saying truly how you feel, if you're not truly being who you are, you're going to be lonely or misunderstood or feel like uh, maybe I'm invited to these things, but it's because I'm just showing up as they want me to be. And Mm -hmm. you're not in the circles that are truly, you know, a part of who you are and what you want. And so you know, if you need another reason to show up authentically and to say your opinion, it's because the right people will accept that and the wrong ones won't like it. And then you can just ditch them. And then you can just be around people that actually like you for who you are instead of having all these fake relationships. So I think right. when you're starting this idea of having a deep, valuable relationship and having this connection, what I keep hearing is like, if you just be you, that's the answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so I think of like icebreakers, like if you're going to start dating someone, like really get to know what their preferences are, like ask them the weird questions, like get to know each other right away and see what your deal breakers are, right? Like, do you, do you have anybody that's a client that like, do they come to you and they're like, I want to be in a relationship, but I, I don't know how to even start the process. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's funny you say that because I mean, I, I can't necessarily talk about my clients, however, a lot of, um, I guess, media outlets ask me to uh, contribute to articles and stuff. And and a particular company that I've been working with, they've been asking me a lot of questions about like, oh, how how do we, um, how do what what do we do on a first day? Like, how are we supposed to act? What are we supposed to do? And you know, I don't know what it is that they're looking for, but in my mind, I'm always like, okay, this might not be the answer that you want, right? Like you you might be looking for tips 
on like, oh yeah, dress well and look this way and take them to this kind of a, a place to impress them. But my answer is always like, you know, include you in there, right? Like include a flavor of you. So for instance, you know, if you are an outdoorsy person and you're not sure if this person that you're going to take on a date is an outdoorsy person or not, and it's important for you to find somebody who's kind of outdoorsy, then I would say, why don't you take this person on a date to like a rock climbing studio or something and see how they operate? You know, and, and it doesn't need to be that extreme, but I think it's really important sometimes to to kind of tailor things that we do to who we are and so that we're able to find the right partner for us. And so there's not any like one size fits all way of approaching a relationship. But the one thing to keep in mind is you always want to make sure that you just try to be as authentic as possible. Don't always think about like, oh, God, what if this person rejects me? What if this person thinks this about me or, or, you know, they don't like this one thing that I do. Kind of like what you were saying is that if you just be you, there will absolutely be people that can accept you for who you are, maybe because they're also kind of like you too, right? And, and, and maybe that's, that's the person that you need to find in order to spend your life with, not the person that sees a false version of you, like the, the version that like is dressed a certain way and goes to the fancy restaurant when you personally don't even like fancy restaurants. Thinking too, like not even just starting a relationship, if you feel like your connection with your spouse or partner is kind of fizzling, I feel like this could be a tip for anybody. Like, you know what? I I used to like to do this and I haven't done it in a while. I feel like you can kind of reignite the flame and do something that you're like, I used to be outdoorsy. I used to go on hikes. Like, would you want to do that with me? Let's like do something together that used to make me light up and mm-hmm. and see if it's something that's an option for your relationship. Yeah. Yeah. And knowing what you do like and what you don't, right? And your mm-hmm. needs and not being afraid to speak up for yourself and voice those needs. And what I'm thinking of is is how that ties back into worthiness and believing that your needs are valid, right? I think about Absolutely the inner child and and the work that I've done in my personal experience of worthiness and love and how as a child having an abandoned father, when I vocalized my needs, it was he leaves, right? And so as I'm doing that inner, inner child work, it's knowing that I can say out loud what I need and my boyfriend isn't going to leave me. (laughs) And that is some deep work. And we could do 75 podcasts on that. But I just want to touch a little bit on worthiness and how do we, you know, the importance of believing that we're worthy and that by saying our needs, it is helping us and that the right people will be in our corner and and they won't leave. So Mm -hmm. I'm curious, Dr. Betsy, your view on worthiness and how that ties into your authentic self. I think that and, and I truly, truly believe this, and I'm pretty sure any psychologist you talk to is going to agree that we all have inherent worth. We, we just all do, like, period. Um, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have pets. I, I, I love to use pets as examples just because that's a pure love that a lot of people have experienced and they understand. So if you think about it, I don't, I don't know if either of you guys have any pets or have had pets. We both but, want dogs, but someday we'll have a puppy. <laughs> uh-huh. 
<laughs> or do either of you guys have, have kids? I have three kids. Okay. So, well, so you get it. You, yeah. you know, like you just love them, right? Like period. Not because they do anything for you. Not because, you know, in fact, when kids are first born, they don't even make eye contact with you really. Like, you know, I don't have any kids, but my understanding is that, um, you know, the first, month or two or maybe even three months of having a child is just completely thankless but you love this little being anyway for some reason right and you can't really put 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 a you know put words uh, you know towards how you feel about your kids so what that means is that we all have inherent worth is that when we're born our parents naturally are supposed to just love us and so certain experiences sometimes cause us to believe otherwise and you know and and so when when we're children and our parents hug us kiss us protect us feed us when we cry and they tend to us that makes us feel important so we actually feel like we're worth something but it doesn't mean that just because we don't feel it that we're not worth anything does that make sense? Absolutely. So I think that, yeah, like, so, so I, I think that like for us growing up, when we felt love, then we naturally know how to give that love. But when we didn't feel that love, we also don't know how to give that love. So it's possible that, you know, when we were raised by parents who they themselves never really experienced what healthy attunement felt like, you know, if they themselves you know, felt like there were certain parts of them that upset their parents or something like that, then then naturally they're going to also treat their kids that way. Not because their kids are unlovable, but that's just how they learned how to be in, you know, as, as a parent. So yeah, like when it comes to self-worth, I think that the one, one of the things that I've noticed that people struggle with the most is that they don't get that they're inherently worthy. They don't, because it, it's almost like, like they're so used to this idea that no, I need to be a certain way in order to be loved that it's really hard for them to make that connection. But that's just the truth. And if you've ever had a pet, you'll also know that this pet doesn't do anything for you. The pet doesn't make money for you. The pet does not, you know, do chores for you. It doesn't do anything for you. It's just there, and and you love it anyway. And that's 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 inherent worth in you know in my opinion. Yeah. It's- your birthright to be loved and by breathing <laughs> you you are worthy yeah. and you deserve it and it's knowing that your parents did the best that they could with what they had and that it's not about you and, and also if you mm-hmm. don't think that if you don't think your parents did the best with what they had you're still worthy of love i think that that statement it's true in some sense but i think it triggers a lot of people because it's like once you have kids, you have a new understanding of what's possible, mm-hmm. you know, like both my parents had abusive fathers and were such loving parents. And I feel like if they heard that statement, they'd be like, but did they do the best they could, you know? And so I think mm-hmm. there is something about that, like the worthiness that you're talking about and feeling like your parents didn't meet that standard, you know, that really affects your ability to feel that worth. And it's something Brooke and I talk about all the time. And 
we even have to convince ourselves of things like, you know, just because you're not productive doesn't mean you're not worthy, mm -hmm. you know, and we put that value on ourselves because that's how we got seen as children was performing and showing up and, and then that's how we felt it. And mm -hmm. so worthiness is such a huge part in relationships too, of being able to even voice what you want. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Because I think that along the lines of what you guys are saying that, yeah, like there are certain things as children that maybe we would have had to do in order to feel that love. Um, so for instance, if every time I laughed and sang and told jokes, that's how I could make everybody laugh and enjoy my company. But every time I cried, then people thought I was annoying and left me alone. Then naturally, I'm going to want to continue to entertain people when I grow up. And I'm going to try to hide this other unlovable part of myself. And what that just contributes to is that we grow up almost being like just, just fragmented selves. You know, we're, we're not our whole selves um, around people. And um, that can be a very painful and lonely experience to just always feel like, okay, I need to be the entertainer. I need to, you know, I need to continue to play this role in order to get love. I'm curious for people who are like, okay, I believe I'm worthy, but how do I reinforce that belief so that it becomes you know, a part of me, I had a rough childhood or it's something that I'm aware of, but I want to work on it. So, you know, there's affirmations and there's all of these different tips. I'm curious if you have any specific tips that you recommend. The only, I feel, real way to actually believe that we're worthy is we actually have to just experience it. I think that when we continue to, to show up as our false selves, then there's no way that we will actually know if our core selves are lovable and worthy. So I think that it's really, really important to take more risks and just, you know, just try our best to be our authentic selves so that we're able to actually see like, oh, okay, by being this particular way is not the only way that I can get people to love me. Because if that was the only way, then again, there's still this assumption that this other part of me is unworthy and unlovable. So I think that being able to just challenge ourselves to take some risks, right? Like even if it's something as small as, hey, boyfriend, I really love it when you buy me flowers. You know, like just being able to express an opinion, um, you know, depending where you are on your, on your self-healing journey, that can be a really big first step. So it, it really kind of goes back to authenticity is for us to be able to believe that like, yes, we are worthy beings and here's evidence that I'm a worthy being is that there's somebody that truly loves me for who I am. And even when there's conflict because of me being the way I am, that conflict is something that will be overcome and this person isn't going to abandon me because of that. So these are all things that I think are important for us to learn about in therapy. I mean, I, therapy is not the only way, but therapy is really important just because, you know, this is a treatment that's tailored to who you are, what your experiences are, and you're, you're, you're testing out different theories and different uh, new tools based on what's worked for you and what hasn't worked for you. So yeah, that's where I think that we can start developing more worth. Yes, again, asking for 
what you want. And Ian, if you're listening, I love some flowers like weekly. Oh, and Justin, please do more surprise trips. Thank you. <laughs> Look at us just communicating our needs. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Betsy. But yeah, speaking of that, I really want to talk about healthy relationships, especially with the relationship expert. I mean, we got you here. Let's get into it. So, you know, the biggest thing that I know from my relationship is that communication is key. If you ask any couple that's been married a long time, they say that. So what comes to mind when you think about like the keys to a healthy, loving relationship? Well, of course, number one, communication. (laughs) (laughs) Um, That one is so, so important. But I think that another really, really important um, part of every relationship is repair, just because there's always going to be conflict. People, we're just we're just unique beings, and we all have different experiences growing up. There's no such thing as two people with the exact same experiences. You could even be twins and grew up with the same parents in the same environment and grow up to be completely different people based on things you were exposed to, based on certain, you know, even, even how your nervous system responds to certain things, you know. So, So conflict is always going to be a given in any relationship, but I think that efforts to repair, um, learning how to repair effectively, I think is probably one of the most important things. When we don't repair, when we don't repair relationships, um, you know, and there's a rupture, then what could come from that is it's just going to keep getting worse. There's going to be resentments over time. Um, you know, we're not, not dealing with things as they come up, they're getting swept under the rug. So by learning how to repair, learning how to communicate when these types of things um, come up so that we can work together to form a collaborative relationship, I think that that's what helps the longevity of the relationship. So effective repair, is that communicating when it happens or close to the fact after so that you don't sweep it under the rug or what does effective repair mean? So effective repair means that there's always some sort of a resolution in the end. So two people, you know, are are presented with a particular conflict and then both people are able to kind of like sit down and both are heard and like, you know, this is how I felt. This is what I need. This is how I felt. This is what I need. And both people work together in order to come to an agreement on how we're going to proceed from this point on. And after that happens, to be able for both people to, to, to kind of get back into that love stuff, right? Like now that, now that we've talked about this. Um, we should be able to to come together again. We should be able to connect again. When we're unable to connect, usually what that could be a sign of is that, you know, whatever the solution was really wasn't a solution, um, you know, that that allowed us to feel safe enough to connect again. So, so yeah, like by being able to make sure that we repair after relationships, it allows us to be confident that, you know, this relationship is going to continue to move forward in a way that works for both people. Yeah. Something that's coming to mind is as we followed you on Instagram, one of your reels was how to actually apologize (laughs) and how to Uh actually own what you do. And I know in my relationship that I don't feel I can move on until it's a sincere apology. There's no buts. There's no, but I was, or you did. It's a actual apology. And so 
For me, thinking about that, like effective repair is like we both actually really owned and you can really feel you care and you actually say sorry in a true and meaningful way. Yeah. And feel yeah. safe. That was a huge. I love how you mentioned that. Like you feel safe and heard and that you can move on together. It's powerful. Yeah. And I'm yeah. thinking of trust too, like trust in a relationship. I know that's a big thing for people, especially, you know, if your parents cheated on each other, seeing that, being able to trust your partner, or if there was an infidelity already and you're back together. And so um, can you kind of just speak on trust and how to develop that or how to nurture that in your relationships? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that, um, I guess if we're specifically talking about infidelity, I think that trust is something that needs to be actively uh, actively addressed. So just because two people have decided to stay together, it doesn't mean that that trust has naturally returned. I think that when, uh, you know, one of the most important ways to, to deal with uh, trust is we need to be able to see a true, a, a true sense of remorse from the other person that, you know, they truly, truly understand how they made us feel and that, you know, they're recognizing that what they did caused a particular level of pain for us and that they're actually taking steps in order to try to earn the trust again. But, but even the, the, the party that suffered, I think it's also really important to create space for the other person to, to earn trust as well. Um, you know, so I think that in terms of infidelity, it's really important that two people actively work together in order to continue to develop that trust. Maybe in the beginning, there's going to be a little bit more work that needs to be done. Maybe transparency is going to be extra important. But over time, trust is developed through just, you know, more experiences of being able to be trusted, right? Like we have to slowly develop this track record again, where it's like, okay, I see that you've apologized. You've demonstrated that you're willing to take the actions necessary in order to continue to develop this trust. And over time, I think that's how trust is redeveloped in a relationship. What about someone that's been cheated on in a previous relationship and then they start a new one and, you know, call it trust issues or call it whatever you want. Like, how do you work with clients to kind of trust someone that hasn't broken that yet? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that that's always a tricky situation um, because I think that in those relationships, it, it, it is really hard for the other person, uh, you know, because like for them, it feels like, well, I didn't do anything. And so why are you holding this against me? But in the end of the day, you're choosing to be with a person who has had this history of being cheated on multiple times. And so what that means is that, you know, again, both people need to be willing to work together um, I think that that might mean, for instance, being able to communicate as a hurt party, being able to communicate like these are the things that I need in order to be able to develop trust with you. And, um, you know, and, and these are these are the things that could be triggering for me. So I need some reassurance from you. So it's perfectly OK to work with our new partners to explain to them, like, what are what needs do you have in order to be able to develop trust? Because the thing is, is that, yes, the other person doesn't, I guess, deserve to be treated like, an, you know, somebody who, who's unfaithful. Um, but at the same time, like, we 
as people who have suffered that betrayal, you, you know, we also deserve to feel the way that we feel. We deserve to be able to protect ourselves the way that, that we need to in order to, to be able to trust again. So in every single relationship, it's really a result of two people's experiences coming together. And we need to be able to accept that the person that we're choosing to be in a relationship with comes with certain characteristics that we just need to learn how to work with. Yeah. What I'm hearing is honesty, right? Like honest with how you're feeling, what you need. I think trust and honesty (laughs) go hand in hand. And also thinking about infidelity and this betrayal, like self-esteem is huge. I think speaking of someone who has been cheated on and experienced that, you know, it definitely takes a hit on your self-esteem. And so I'm curious, thinking about self-esteem in relationships, how you feel like self-esteem plays in relationships, like what your viewpoint on that is. My perspective on self-esteem is that it often comes from messages that we received from, from uh, I guess, people that were significant in our lives when we were growing up. So if we were treated as if we were precious, like if we felt precious and we felt important, then naturally when we grow up, then we're going to know how to treat ourselves. We, we view ourselves in that way. And when certain things happen, such as infidelity, we're less likely to blame ourselves because we have that healthy level of self-esteem. Now, I'm not saying, though, that betrayal cannot hurt our self-esteem because it absolutely can. You know, it does cause us sometimes to ask questions of like, okay, like, what, what's wrong with me? Like, you know, was there anything that I could do, I could have done in order to change the situation? Um, so some of those questions, I think it's really important to be able to kind of process some of these things and like, okay, where are these questions really coming from? Where are these beliefs coming from that this somehow was my fault and that there's something that I could have done or I should do to prevent this from happening again? So if you, you know, if, if you think again, like, so for instance, um, if growing up, for, for some reason, you know, there were certain parts of you that felt you felt was unlovable. But let's say that you were always, you were always loved for, praised for being like a pretty girl. What that might do is it might cause you to believe like, okay, like that's my worth is I'm a pretty girl. So when we're cheated on, then it might cause us to wonder, wait, am I that pretty? You know, because if that's my worth and this person cheated on me, like, am I that pretty? Or we might also wonder, like, it's like, okay, well, I am a pretty girl, but then, you know, this other unlovable part of me, like, is is that, you know, did that impact this relationship and cause this person to stray? So there's just a lot of messages that we carry on with us and we repeat every time we're in a certain level of pain and we're starting to try to, we're trying to figure out, like, our brains are really smart. It's always trying to figure out problems. So that's what our brains do is like whenever there's something painful, let's always try to like solve the problem. And then we're more likely to kind of use old messages that we repeated to ourselves in an effort to try to solve these problems as adults. It's so interesting. You know, I'm thinking about how to, as a child, the type of attention you got from your parents or the relationship that you saw that you may be aware or not aware that you find that in a future partner. So if you have like an uh, emotionally unavailable parent, 
then you tend to find a, sp- a spouse that's that way, which is so weird because you think you would go the opposite direction. So why mm-hmm. does that happen? I mean, I know it's familiar, but like, wouldn't we want to like rebel and go the opposite direction? Uh-huh. Well, the reason why we go for what's familiar is because we know how to handle it, right? Like we know what to do about this kind of treatment. And so it's not like we naturally go and seek people that will treat us in the same way. I think it's more so that we don't realize that this is a problematic way of being in a relationship, right? So if we grew up in an environment where there was a lot of verbal abuse and we end up dating somebody that is very verbally abusive, it might not strike us that that's a problem. It might feel really bad, but at the same time, it might be like, well, that's normal in relationships, isn't it? And sometimes we get lucky, though. Sometimes we grow up in these unhealthy environments and then we just happen to find a partner that is very healthy and, and secure and treats us the way that we deserve to be treated. And, you know, and, and that's where we got the, you know, that, that that's a, 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 very, a very positive thing. But, yeah, like a lot of times the reason why we tend to gravitate towards people that are kind of like our parents is just simply because we're used to it. It's, you know, we're, it's, it's familiar. Um, one thing that I, I like to share a lot is, you know, for me growing up, my dad, um, he had four girls and a boy. And my dad was so loving and so patient with all the girls. And he treated me like I was princess. And it's crazy because he had four girls and a boy. And and I never, ever felt jealous. I never felt not special to him. Um, and so you know, growing up for me, naturally, when somebody treated me badly, that stood out to me. Like, I knew that, like, that's not how I want to feel. And that, you know, and what that would do is it naturally made me realize, like, that that feels gross. I don't want that. So it's interesting, because now, like, when I look at all of my siblings and their partners, all of our partners are very, very caretaking. They're very patient and understanding. Um, very open-minded and it, it makes sense you know because you know we we're just naturally gravitated towards a certain feeling that people bring bring for us so if you didn't have that situation <laughs> growing up like how do you what are some signs that you are being mistreated right if it's comfortable to us I think our subconscious we're drawn to it like you said because it's comfortable and our brain isn't saying like danger danger because it's comfort but and I think there takes uh, there takes a a certain level of awareness and that work to want to be aware but I'm curious like what are some signs of being mistreated that you Mm -hmm. would want to share I generally like to approach that in a sense where something is not a problem until it's a problem in your life So that's one thing that I say a lot to people. So, for example, let's take, let's, let's be extreme and take infidelity. If you are somebody who generally believes in polyamory, then maybe your partner, you know, having other relationships is not, isn't such a problem. Now, of course, it can't be secret, right? So like if you're agreeing to be in an open relationship, then it can't be a secret, But generally, like, I guess the point that I'm trying to make is that there's no such thing as, like, you know, that this this is mistreatment and this is not. Well, actually, let me take that back. If you're being physically abused in any way or emotionally abused in any way, I imagine that can't feel good. 
Does that does that make sense? Like, mm-hmm. so when it comes to being mistreated, we need to find out. We we need to really get in touch with how we feel about a particular situation. So going back to that example of having multiple partners, you might have your entire social network be against that because, for example, polyamory is something that is not very socially common and socially accepted. But this person might feel like it's totally okay. And if they don't feel like they're being abused, if they don't feel like it's a bad situation for them, then maybe it's not so much of a bad situation, right? So I think that in the end of the day, we need to figure out, like, how do I feel about this situation? Because just because something is familiar, it doesn't mean that we feel good about it, right? So if somebody is constantly verbally abusing you, that can't feel good. You know, it it might be familiar, but it can't feel good. And when we can trust these emotions of ours. And I think that this is, this is another part of, you know, developing self-trust and self-worth is when we can trust that our instincts are valid and that, you know, our feelings are valid and we start listening to these feelings, then we'll be able to figure out like, okay, that's not okay. That is mistreatment and I need to do something about it. Yeah, that makes sense. I think too about marriages and how, you know, a lot of marriages we have the same fights over and over and over. Like the, if you want to call it a mistreatment, you know, one of the spouses does something that upsets the other one and it keeps happening. Even though you've said, I don't like it when that happens, it keeps happening. So I don't know if I want to put the word mistreatment on that. But when it comes to communicating that and couples that have the same arguments over and over, like to me, I typically, if I would hear that, I would say, sounds like you need a therapist to like <laughs> help, mm-hmm. help with that. But that's something I feel like happens in marriages. You you have these same fights over and over and over, and it doesn't go anywhere. And so what would be a tip that you would give a couple that, you know, they're communicating that it's bothering them, but this same thing keeps happening over and over? Like, what would you say to them? I think that there's different reasons for having these same fights over and over. So one of the reasons could be, um, I guess, content related and then the other could be context related Um, so content meaning like what what are we even fighting about and you know and I guess that that's where we can bring back that discussion about um, about resolutions and repair is have we already decided on a plan of action and if we're fighting about this again are we you know is that solution not actually a solution or do we just need to be reminded of like oh yeah remember we said that this is the way that we're going to deal with it so in this situation can, can we do that the other part of it though is when I mean what I mean by context is how are we fighting about things so are we continuously dismissing each other are we continuously like you know listening just to respond um, where the other person's not actually being heard. So I think that, you know, when it comes to these fights that keep happening over and over again, we need to understand, like, what is the source of this, these arguments? Um, you know, is there a solution that we really need? Or do we need to just learn how to communicate in a healthier way? I see both happening. Um, I think that's something that, that um, is, for me, I, I truly, truly believe this, is that I believe that humans in general are rational. 
it doesn't necessarily mean that everything that we do is reasonable, meaning that like, you know, that we should have, you know, be entitled to do the things that we, that, that uh, we want to do. But I think that we're always logical. We're always rational, meaning that there's always some explanation for why we want what we want, why we behave the way we behave. So I think that that's why communication is just so important because if we actually spent the time to listen to the other person and they spent the time to listen to us, I truly, truly believe that a hundred percent of the time we can, we can understand the other person. We can empathize with their situation. And when we're able to do that, it kind of like allows both people to lower our guards. And so we're not so rigid anymore about like whatever it is that we need we're much more willing to work with each other um on on uh, on some sort of a compromise and so once we go there it's really important but that's where also the context needs to come in right like if we understand a person we also need to learn how to communicate that we understand them so that you know we're not raising the person's defenses again you know because once we you know once once we show a particular attitude or say things in a certain way um, then it can, again, create this back and forth where, you know, we become rigid again. It's like, no, I don't want to work with the person. You know, I don't want to compromise. And so it's really important to be able to manage both when it comes to conflict and relationships. Yes. And I think you brought up a good point of how you're bringing it up because then the other person shuts down and then you're not actually listening. So it really doesn't go anywhere because you're not heard. And something that I think it requires is a level of vulnerability, like a perfect example that I keep thinking of is my husband, every Thursday night would play softball. It would go late. He'd be a pile the next day. And I would be frustrated with him every Friday morning going into the weekend. I'm like, finally I blew up. I'm like, I hate you every Friday going to every weekend. This sucks. <laughs> like I, I can't stand you. I get so mad. Like why do you have to be out so late? And he was like, what are you really mad about? Like what? It, like, you know what I, th do you want me to guess why you're that mad? And I was like, what? <laughs> He's like, I think you're jealous. I think you want a Thursday night. And I think that when you see me having fun with my friends and having a late night, it's something you want. And I was like, shit. <laughs> He's right. <laughs> and it was like, he had to get there. Before. He knows you. <laughs> yeah. So it came to this vulnerable spot in me to be like, okay. I didn't want to admit that I want a night away from my kids because it made me feel selfish to like want a night to do whatever I want and not have to do bedtime. It made me feel like a bad mom to say it. And yeah. so then we start, I have Monday nights, he has Thursday nights. Our marriage went up 10 notches <laughs> after right. just like admitting it, like admitting what you really want. Like what's the real problem? Like what's the root of this? Sure. You know, communicating. Yeah. Yeah. And you see that whatever message it was that you received about being a good mom held you back from just being able to be honest about what you want. But once you guys were able to actually sit down and, and open, openly, honestly say like, you know what? Yeah, I do want a night to myself too. It doesn't make you a bad mom. You're still the same mom. But all this means now is that you're not just taking care of other people, you're taking care of you too, because you are just as important as everybody else. Yeah. And I do get looks, you know, I, I do have opinions on it from other people. I can tell that whatever, but you know what, my unit is healthier and happier 
because I have time to do whatever I want. And most of the time I still do their bedtime, but I find time in my Mondays to do whatever I want now. And it is nice to have that freedom and I'm okay with it now. <laughs> I'm okay with just saying. Yeah. It seems like it works for you. And, you know, I think that that kind of speaks to that other conversation that we had about like, how do we know that something is a problem? Maybe other people are going to be looking at you from the outside and like, oh my God, she's going to yoga, you know, and when she has three kids, but Hey, I mean, if you've got a husband at home that's watching three kids, then why not? You know, so I, I think that, yeah, like, we just need to figure out, like, what works for me? You know, it might not work for other people, or maybe they've got expectations of what they think it should be okay to be a mom, but that's not what works for you, and if it works for you to go out on Mondays and your husband goes out on Thursdays, then more power to you. Yep. Yeah, Thank I think you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that ties into balance, right? Like you have to find what is your definition of balance. And that's something that we hear as coaches all the time is how do I balance my personal life, you know, with self-care and filling me up and then also my friendships and then my kids and my marriage and my going out time. Like, does the balance exist? How do I find the balance? And I firmly believe that it's balance is what you make it, right? What do you need? Being honest with yourself and having those open conversations with your husband, with your partner, whoever it may be. Um, but I would love as a psychologist to hear what your perspective of balance is. And is it something that is achievable? Absolutely achievable. So the exercise I usually do with clients is I have my clients think about what is a time in your life that you felt your very best. And we use that almost as this model of what you need to do in order to be able to perform your very best right now. So for example, if let's say that you lived abroad for a year and that was the best time in your life, it doesn't mean that you need to go and live in England or something for the rest of your life, but maybe we get to look at the elements of like, okay, what made that the best time of your life? And maybe it's like, okay, well, I didn't have to worry about anybody. I didn't have anybody telling me when I need to go to sleep, nobody making me feel bad about staying at till 3 a.m. Um, I was able to go to the gym three times a week because that makes me feel good to exercise. Um, I had space to cook. You know, once we're able to look at like, okay, what was in place for you? How can we replicate that right now? Like, what does your life look like right now that is, what what does your life look like right now that is like very far away from this point in your life and what do we need to adjust so for instance if, if you're living you know back here and it's like oh it's because i live with my family and and you know i feel like they're always watching every every move that i make well maybe what that means then is you need to set some boundaries with your family right it's like i should be able to stay up whenever i want i'm an adult you know, um, but thank you for your concern. You know, so so being able to figure out like how can I replicate that in my current environment so that I am able to achieve that more balanced life. And it's different for everybody. You know, so you just need to figure it out on your own. It's like okay, like what what do I need to function at my very best? Yeah. And what I'm hearing too is what systems do I need in place? Like Andrew and Justin, it's the Mondays and the Thursdays and that's their system along with others. 
That's such a powerful tool. I hope that people use it. I know I'm going to. And I think too, something that we talk about a lot is allowing these new things to be an experiment, right? Mm -hmm. Like starting off with, okay, I haven't been going to the gym and three days a week used to make me feel alive. Like let's just start with one or two and see how it works in the schedule. And if that doesn't work, let's try another time of day or let's try it at home or try a gym and figure out what actually makes us feel good and knowing like as you change in life and and evolve, like you may need to re-express and communicate your needs to your person or your friends or whatever relationship you're trying to improve. I think it's okay that your needs change and your person wants you to feel like yourself and be happy and joyous. I mean, they don't want someone grumpy and resentful walking around (laughs) pissed off, but you're not telling them why you're pissed off. Mm -hmm. Like Mm -hmm. like we need to express ourselves so that, you know, like Justin, I'm guilty. He'll say to me, I can't read your mind. Like you, you need to tell me these things. I can't, I don't know what's happening in your mind when I'm pissed off walking around. Like vigorously cleaning the house, giving that look. So I think it's like trying these techniques to make yourself feel like you and communicating. You know, I need to shift things. Mm-hmm. I, this balance feels out of whack. Like and experimenting when you experiment. You know, being honest with yourself that you are in a new season of life. It's not going to look exactly like when you were in England, and that's okay because you're a new version of you. You're evolving, but there are certain things you can pick and recreate in a way that works for you now with where you're at. So I think that's Mm -hmm. that experimenting and that being curious with how can I make what used to work work for me now is so powerful and the work that I love with coaching. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I, I feel like people often think that if I just don't say anything about what I want, that somehow, you know, it's going to create peace in my relationship, right? Like a lot of people just think that it's like, if I just, you know, continue to act like I have no needs or anything, this person is going to love me because life is so easy for them. But the truth is, is that when your needs are not met, it's going to come out later on somewhere else, right? So it's going to come out in like as this bad mood, passive aggressiveness. So what ends up happening is you end up creating other problems elsewhere that you actually have even less control over because like you don't know what you're upset about. Versus when you have a particular need, being able to address it, like when it comes up and it doesn't even need to always be in the form of conflict, right? It's like, I really need somebody to help me do the dishes tonight. You know, I'm just really tired tonight. And, you know, can you help me do the dishes, please? Right? Like something, something as simple as that can save so many arguments and, and, you know, like, and, and bad moods when we come home and then somebody being offended by our bad mood when it wasn't even meant to be personal to them. There's so many problems come out of us not actually sharing our, our real wants with each other. You know, like we all have needs that need to be met in order for us to, to function well. Why do you think that's so hard for people to express? Just these small things, if I just said it, and I can do it in a way that isn't conflict. Take a deep breath. Like, why do you feel like that's so hard just to say how you're feeling? I think a lot of times it comes back to childhood. You know, one of the one of my frustrations, I guess. Well, I guess not necessarily frustrations because there's not much that I can do about it. But you know, when when you really think about it, I I think that a lot of a lot of parenting for generations and generations has been a more kind of 
not necessarily always authoritarian, but it's this assumption that children are less than, you know, that they have, you know, that their needs are not as important as a parent's needs. Um, that, for instance, like a parent's job is to take care of the household and go to work. And yes, that is very, very important. But that should not supersede a child's needs. And a child's needs are very important, and they need to feel like their needs are valid. Um, they need to be tended to in order for them to feel safe. And so I think that when, when we approach parenting with this perspective that, you know, children are less important, that their needs are inferior, that, um, you know, they know less, and therefore I as a parent is their leader and their, uh, their boss, then what that does is it causes the children to feel like, oh, okay, well, my needs, I guess, are not important. And when I express my needs, chances are they're not going to be met, so I might as well not. The problem is, is that kids don't just one day turn 18 and go like, oh, okay, my needs are important. Right? They hold on to the same belief, but like, oh, okay, needs when I was three years old weren't, weren't considered. So, so, you know, when you're four years old, you're still going to think that. When you're 10 years old, you're still going to think that. When you're 35 years old, you're still going to think that until, you know, something happens where you, you learn that that's not an appropriate way to live my life. And we're going to continue to have those struggles. And, you know, because of these kinds of struggles, we also never develop the language to properly communicate our needs. We assume that if we express something, then we expect that, you know, there's going to be some sort of response to it. And so that's where the overanalyzing might come from. It's like, okay, never mind. I'm just not going to ask for it. So just so many different childhood experiences that can affect how we communicate needs or how we even acknowledge our needs. I feel like every parent's listening to this and shitting their pants. Because, <laughs> like, I think I need a therapy appointment after this just because I already put so much pressure on myself to do it right because my kid's childhood is going to stay with them forever, you know? And I think, you know, every adult that's listening, reflect on that. Like, were you raised to be seen and not heard? And like, how can you shift away from that knowing that your feelings are important and they are really important to be heard, especially by the people that love you? You know, and so every night I like beat myself up about what I should have, could have done as a parent. It's super hard. And I, I think my only saving grace is to be honest with my kids when I mess up because I'm going to, and I just say my intention that, man, I'm going to cry. Here we go. But like <laughs> my mission is to make you feel like you can be you and say how you feel. And sometimes I'm going to mess up and not react the way that you want. And I'm sorry, and I'm going to try and do better. And so do you have any advice for parents <laughs> as we're navigating this and are human and make mistakes, like how to do a good job and be there for your kids, knowing you're going to mess up and knowing there's going to be things they're probably going to carry until it's like, <laughs> that's a lot of pressure. Again, <laughs> great birth control over here. <laughs> Well, I guess my first thought about what you said is, wow, apologizing to your kids, that is huge. Because I think that, you know, that goes, goes along with what I was saying about, you know, like this idea that, you know, parents and adults are more powerful and know all and um, almost like dictators, right? Like, because 
that's, that's not the way it's supposed to look. I, I, I show a lot of people, like, um, I don't know if you watch the Discovery Channel, but if you look at a lion and teaching his cub how to, how to, how to hunt, if the cub comes home, you know, empty-handed, you don't see the lion attacking their cub. But humans, unfortunately, you know, a lot of times when their kids do wrong, they attack their children. And, you know, and what kinds of messages are being communicated to the kids about, like, how perfect you need to be and how unlovable you are when you make reasonable mistakes, right? There's no such thing as perfection. So the reason why I pointed to the animal kingdom is because we're animals too, you know, and so that just demonstrates that, you know, maybe we need to be a little bit more understanding and our, our jobs, I think that as human parents is guidance, you know, the job is, yes, protect your children, teach them, guide them, teach them how to be in the world, teach them how to navigate the world. The fact that you're able to apologize, I think that that says so much in terms of giving your your children, empowering your children to feel like, you know, they they have rights, that, you know, what they feel sometimes is important and it matters and that, you know, just because you're you're an adult, it doesn't mean that you're perfect. But I think that the, the bigger message that I'd like to send here is I feel like as long as you are capable of self-awareness and self-reflection, then that already puts you so far ahead as a parent. You know, I, I think that being able to think about how you present, how you're showing up for your kids, that that's huge because, you know, you're, you're actually thinking about what their needs are. You're actually thinking about how you're coming off. So, yeah, I mean, any parents listening out there, um, I hope that you feel reassured that if you're even listening to a podcast that's about health and, and self-care, then you're already, you know, way ahead of the curve. So don't worry. And, and if it ends up messing up your kids, there's always therapy. Because <laughs> <laughs> nobody's perfect, right? Like, I'm not perfect. Mm-hmm. Nobody's perfect. Yeah, but but that, I think that the self-reflection, self-awareness, that ability to even like learn about like, okay, how, how do I be a better person? I think that that matters and, and it, it speaks volumes about who you are. Yeah, Thank you for saying that to all the parents. <laughs> yeah. And not only are you aware, but you're doing something about it, right? You're going to therapy yourself yeah. so that you're not repeating these patterns. You're reading the book. You're having these conversations with your children. Like you're doing the damn thing. And I'm going to okay. just keep reminding you. Thank you. And then when I, hopefully someday I'm a parent, you can do the same thing. <laughs> you know, I think being a parent, whew, God bless you, a lot of work. And then having room for intimacy and working on your own relationship while you're trying to raise like emotionally intelligent humans and wipe their butts as they pee their, like a lot of work, right? <laughs> so I'm thinking for parents, also not parents, like how do we deepen our intimacy? Like, do you have any go-to tips for couples who are like, I need to relight this fire? Kind of like, what are your favorite ways to, for people to do that? I'm excited about this because I actually just discovered something new yesterday. Um, so, <laughs> so one thing that I actually thought about um, is 
I, so, so I, I was actually working with an article. I think I was like telling you guys about that. Um, I was, I was like uh, contributing to an article that was kind of asking about, um, you know, first dates and how to, um, how to keep the spark alive in a relationship. And so I was starting to think about my relationship and like, when are times, because my, me and my husband, we've been together for almost 10 years now. So I was like thinking, I was like, okay, like, what do we do to, to, you know, to just kind of like almost bring those feelings back? And so one of the things that I thought of is, you know, I like when we go on dates that, you know, where we have to dress up and we kind of have to be on our best behavior. And the reason why I like that is I realize that it kind of almost brings back those feelings of wanting to impress, you know, like those early feelings of us dating and like kind of wanting to be like a little bit, a little bit shy, a little bit, you know, cautious with each other, but at the same time, you know, really wanting this person to see us in a good way. And so I, I think that like sometimes when, when me and my husband would go to like, we're not big foodies or anything, but like for, for anniversaries, we might go to like a nice steak restaurant and when we go to a steak restaurant. I'm like in heels and I'm like all dressed up and, and, you know, we're kind of needing to just like be really good and, you know, not talk too loud. And, and so it kind of brings back these old feelings. And so I think that that's one of, um, one, one of the tips that I might be starting to share with people. It's like, yeah, like do something sometimes uncomfortable just because sometimes when you're in a relationship long enough, things get a little bit routine, you get comfortable. And I mean, nothing wrong with comfortable. I think that it's nice, but sometimes it's nice also to kind of like bring back some of those old feelings. Um, another idea that I have, I really like something that Andrea said earlier. Um, I think that we were talking about how to start a relationship, um, you know, and be authentic. And um, but something that Andrea said I, I really liked is that you were saying that being able to kind of think back, like before you got married, or maybe earlier in in your um, in, um, in, in your relationship, were there things that you guys kind of lost touch of? You know, were there things that were part of your life before the relationship that you kind of abandoned for the sake of the relationship, which has, you know, kind of caused it to be inauthentic? So I think that a good way of creating more authenticity is, yeah, like by thinking about like, well, who was I before I started this relationship? And what are some things that I really, really loved? And how can I bring that not just back in my life, but can I introduce my partner that too. So I think that, um, yeah, those are some really, really, I think, good ways to be able to build intimacy. And, you know, another big thing is making sure that we actually make time for intimacy building. Like, I think that sometimes in relationships, um, especially when you have kids, the focus ends up becoming on taking care of the kids so much and being, I guess, again, quote, unquote, a good parent that we forget how important our relationships are as well because it's not when when you're connecting with your partner it's not just about you know you guys connecting it's not like a selfish thing you're also demonstrating to your children what a healthy relationship is kind of like what my parents did you know so being able to kind of show your kids like this is part of being in a healthy relationship is you go out together and if that sometimes means i'm going to leave you guys with babysitters i want you to see that mommy and daddy have like that we like each other and so that's how your relationships in the future should look like like you and your partners should like each other 100 percent, yes and i think too about when you think about when you liked each other at the beginning 
a lot of times you're doing new things together. Mm-hmm. You know, like when Justin and I travel a lot and the most exciting time is when we go to a place that neither of us have been. Because in the beginning of our relationship, we went to a lot of places he had been because he had traveled more than me. But now when we're going to different states for my marathons, like neither of us have been there. And it's so much more exciting to explore a place that you've never been or do an activity that neither of you have either done, you know, to kind of like laugh at each other. Like, (laughs) what are we doing here? You're going to share dopamine hits. And now you have a new experience together Mm -hmm. that you can reflect on and enjoy. And, you know, you're not just going out and doing these things on your own, but you're doing them together. That's really powerful. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for your insight. This has been awesome. And whether you're a mom or not a mom, whoever is listening, like this is going to apply to them. And I hope you all listening found so much value. I know Andrew and I did. And if you want more of Dr. Betsy, where can they find you? So if you're interested in checking out my stuff, you can go on to Instagram. I talk a lot about uh, self-esteem, healthy relationships. Um, and my handle is love always Dr. Betsy. And um, if you're interested in working with me, then you can go to my website, www.drbetsychung.com. Yes. And to make sure everybody can find you, we will plug all of your information and connect it to our show notes. All right. And now it's time for three gold stars. All right. So number one, I would say always respect your partner as a separate person. Um, We are all unique beings and it's really important that we make space for that. Um, And when our partners can feel like they're loved and able to be their authentic selves, then that naturally just makes the relationship a lot more smooth and positive. Number two, um, maintain a personal life. So do not ever lose yourself so much in a relationship where it feels like if you were to somehow lose this relationship that you're going to completely fall apart. Um, it, you, nobody should ever have that amount of power over us. And number three, I would say have a lot of conversations with your partner. There is literally no way that we can ever know somebody. It doesn't matter how long we've been to, been with them. There's no way that we will ever finish getting to know them. So the more that we talk to each other, the more that we get to um, get to know each other, work together to make a relationship work. So yeah, have lots and lots of conversations with your partner. Beautiful. So powerful. All right. And we want to get to know you a little more. So we have our Unleashing Ivy questions. Are you ready? I'm ready. All right. Dr. Betsy, what's the biggest lesson you've learned from your own romantic relationships? So this is actually kind of new for me too. So just so that everybody knows, like, you know, even though I've been working in relationships for a really long time, um, I'm always learning new things about my own relationship and just relationships in general and never stop learning. So for me, I think that I finally actually know what it feels like to be authentic in my relationship. You know, before, I think that authenticity was something that was like, okay, yeah, like authentic is really important. It makes sense. But being able to actually feel what it's like to be authentic, I think is so important. And because of that, now I feel like my husband has my back for everything. Like I don't have to worry about anything anymore because he's not going anywhere. Like he, the fact that he knows every single part of me makes me feel so secure that I, I feel completely safe and secure. So I think that that's, that's uh, the one takeaway for me in terms of my relationship. That's awesome that you found that. 
I love it. All right. Next question. What has been your biggest struggle with self-esteem over the years? I think my inner critic. Um, that one is pretty huge. And so I think that I never realized why I was always struggling to achieve the things I wanted. Like, you know, I, I, I mean, I, I'm, I'm going to praise myself a little bit. I think I have really good ideas. Um, I, I have like these notes on my phone. It's always like a movie idea or a business idea. Like there's always ideas in my mind. And I always wonder though, like, okay, these, these ideas just stay on paper, but how do I translate them? And over the years, I start, I would see like so many times that I would try to start a new project and I would never finish. And what I recently learned is that I have this inner critic that's always talking to me and that's always telling me like, oh, yeah, you're dreaming too big. Oh, that's not going to work. You don't know how to do that. So there were a lot of these voices inside my head that were keeping me from taking action and just making me feel, you know, feel really worried that like, oh, I'm going to fail. And so I think that in terms of my self-esteem, being able to recognize when this voice is just simply a voice from my younger self. And it's not actually what I believe. It's not actually um, true. I think that has tremendously helped me being able to take more risks, be able to follow through with certain things that I want to do. And then over time, making me just feel more confident that I do have power to achieve the things that I want to achieve. Yes, yeah, so you have everything you need within you. I love that you touched on the inner critic because that's so important. And I think it ties beautifully into self-worth and your needs and all of the great stuff <laughs> you've blessed us with. Um, I don't want to let you go, but we have to. <laughs> so our last question, Dr. Betsy, what is one thing you wish you would have known sooner? Hmm. I think that if I would have known sooner what it felt like to be in a truly comfortable relationship, this pandemic has really changed my perspective on relationships. It, it was it was a very difficult experience for everybody for the world. But for me, I, I, I tend to be an optimist. So I'm always looking for what what's the silver lining? Like, you know, what can I how can I benefit from this situation? And so I think that's something that really, really just completely changed the way that I did things was just that because of the pandemic, I, I couldn't go out anymore. I couldn't, you know, just, just like do the stuff that I was normally doing, like going to bars and hanging out with friends and going to like a new birthday party every single weekend. I was only able to hang out with my family and, you know, a select few of friends. And what I discovered is that these are my people. You know, the fact that, you know, even in the midst of a pandemic, like, and we have to make choices of who we're spending our time with and make these calculated choices of like, should I see this person? And is it safe to see this person? I think that over time, what I realized is that the people that I was actually spending my time with are people I naturally felt comfortable with. And, you know, and when I was able to kind of get in touch with that level of comfort and realize like, whoa, like, for example, I have this cousin who I grew up with her um, and we'd always managed to stay in touch with each other. And it was actually my husband that pointed out certain characteristics of our relationship. And I was like, wow, I never realized how, how comfortable I feel telling her, no, I don't want to go there. 
no, I don't want to do that. Why don't you come into my house instead? You know, I never realized how comfortable I felt being able to do that. And so I think if I, I, I think one thing that I wish I knew sooner in my life was just how to, how to engage in relationships. Love it. Mm. Beautiful. Oh, God. Oh, I don't want to let you go either. <laughs> I'm so grateful for your time, for your insight, for all of the reflection that I feel like we will continue to do as we age and in, in, in our relationships and to think about our childhood and how it's affecting us. And so thank you for the work that you're doing. And I just want to encourage everybody to follow you on Instagram or go to your website to learn more about the work you do because it's beautiful and it's going to be so helpful for everybody. Yes. And thank you so much. Everything you're saying is gold, uh, but we <laughs> wrap up every episode with a piece of gold. And so we would love you to share your piece of gold with our listeners. So one of my favorite quotes is by Frederick Nietzsche. And it is, there are no facts, only interpretations. I just absolutely love that quote because for me, it allows us to make room for multiple perspectives and you know and it really forces us to kind of think about like how true are my truths is there a gray area to this and you know can i challenge myself to think about other perspectives aside from the one that i have and i think that that level of flexibility just really makes life a lot easier because you know because in the end of the day everybody's always going to have differences in opinions and we need to learn how to live with that. So yeah, this Frederick Nietzsche, Nietzsche quote is uh, definitely very meaningful to me. There are no facts, only interpretations. This is Gold Ivy signing off. Listen to your truth and go chase your gold. <laughs>